We're going to open with an exercise. You can use pencil and paper for this, or you can use your phone if you want to just have a note on your phone either way. Um, I do have paper up here if anybody wants paper and their pens and pencils back there. Okay. Um, yeah, if you don't mind, Pat, getting, getting Jim a piece of paper and anybody else. Flav, good to see you. All right, so just get uh, either piece of paper and pencil or uh, get a note out on your phone so you can write something down real quick. All right, so what I want you to do is I want you to finish this sentence in 10 different ways. Finish this sentence in 10 different ways. It's really simple, okay? The sentence is, I am. So you're just describing yourself, all right? Finish that sentence in 10 different ways. I am, blank, blank, etc. As you read through them one at a time, I'm going to give you a one or a zero on each one of these, okay? Um, so I'll tell everybody what the metric is. It's not bad if you get a low score, but we'll, you'll see what we're doing here. Um, so if you write, if you, if one of the things you have down is a personal relationship, an inherited social role, or membership in a face-to-face -face community, that's a point. You get a point for each of those. If it's a personal attribute, like I'm curious, or an accomplishment, or a membership in an abstract group, like I'm an American or a Christian, then you get a zero for that. Okay? So it's, it's fine. It's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing, but I'm just differentiating. Okay, so give me, give me the first one. And everybody else, you can try to grade yourself as we're, we're giving some examples here. It's okay. It's okay. Okay, I am a Christian. Okay, so that's a zero. I am a wife. Yeah, I'll give you one for that. I am a Christian. Okay, i probably give you a zero for that. If you, if you mention like the actual company where you work or the team you're a part of, that'd probably be a one, right? I am a health coach. Okay, uh, that's a zero, yeah. <laughs> I, I am a supportive friend. Okay. It's kind of a characteristic about yourself. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you one for that. I am a zero. Okay, that's a zero. <laughs> That's a zero. I am the That's a zero. Stick around for the last lesson, by the way. I am someone who loves Okay, that's a zero. I am That's a zero. Okay, what, what was your score? I, was that two? Okay, so one or two? Okay. What did you say, like, father, Yeah, father, husband, I, I would give you one for each of those because it's kind of a rule. It's a you're, you have a face-to-face -face relationship in mind because you're a father of a particular child or a husband, particular wife. Yeah. So like mom, sister. Yeah, I'd give, you, I'd give you ones for all of those. Yeah. Yeah. So that's membership in an abstract group. If you said, I'm a member of Wellspring Church, that would be a face-to-face -face community. So I'd give you a one for that. See, that's, that's kind of abstract. It, it's not in relationship to other people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What about a basketball watch? Oh, that's definitely a zero. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say that's, that's okay. So everybody, you, you can ask if, if you have any other outstanding questions, you can ask them. Does everybody have a score for yourself? It's not an well, exact science. I'm probably the only one in here that's not a relationship with them. Well, if did you write that down? I wrote down this. Um, 
Yeah, I, I would get, I would give you a one for that actually, because you're you're thinking of a, of a relationship even though it's in the past. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I'd have to by that same logic, but yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, every does anybody want to share share a witness that definitely is zero. That's that's not a face to face relationship. Okay. That's a personal attribute. That's not a relationship. Or an that's not an inherited social role. Okay. Traveler, those are personal attributes. Yeah. Okay. Does everybody have a number you feel pretty pretty comfortable with? That's a, that's a good number. All right. Some people shout your numbers out. What you got? Five. I got a four. Got a five. Three. Zero. Two. Okay. Two, two. All right. Awesome. So we're going to talk about um, lesson four, severing the ties that bind the demise of the collective. Okay? We're going to talk about the demise of the collective. If you were a typical Kenyan tribesman who took this exact same test, you would score on average an eight. The average Kenyan tribesman would say, I am such and so, you know, so-and-so's father, so-and-so's son, so-and-so's husband, that's that's what they would write, and then they would think of like two other characteristics that aren't relationships. Jim, yeah. That's kind of cool. You said that the Kenyans, right? Yeah. Both my son has ran for years in the East Coast, and Kenyan runners literally run in packs, and they're taught they're trained from a young age to never leave anybody behind. So that's the reason all Kenyan runners are so good. They always run in packs. Yeah. That's a really interesting uh, kind of metaphor for collectivism. The typical American undergraduate student scores a zero on this test. That's, that's the average. So this is just a very crude approximation of how individualistic you are versus how collectivistic you are. Now, we're going we're gonna to break this down a little bit more. But America is the most individualistic nation in the world. By far, no one else is particularly close. We're the most individualistic society out there. Now, there are some cultural advantages to being an individualistic society. There are some good things that come from that. So let me, let me put it to you. What, what might be an advantage to being an individualist or being in a society of individualists? What, what do individualists maybe do better at than Kenyans? Entrepreneurship. What's that? Entrepreneurship, yeah. Yeah, okay. So innovation, entrepreneurship, sure. Say again. Survival in what sense? Um, you, know, you can make it on your own. You know, um, thinking about you were saying they were in the packs. There's sort of self-sufficiency. Maybe a, more likely to survive on the, the frontier or the lone pioneer yeah, kind of thing. Or you know, like me, I'm trying to make it on my own. Mm -hmm. now. Um, or like my mom. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because you're framing it as a positive that you can survive on your own. In a collective society, I think they would frame it as a negative that, you, that you're attempting to, and they would say, well, your community should support you, and you shouldn't have to survive on your own, which is just interesting. You know, we're thinking about it with the individual system. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, so sometimes you, there are certain things you just have to do for yourself. And those things, individualists might be better at making sure those things get done. Yeah, that, that certainly could be a strength. What else? 
Not being, not yeah. being influenced by a back mentality. Being less influenced by others, potentially, yeah. What else? Something over here? Not running. Oh yes, yeah, so <laughs> probably a weakness, but okay, I get, I get you, I get you. Um, okay, so there's actually quite a bit of research on individualistic societies and some of the strengths that they have. So all of this stuff is research backed, and it's interesting because some of this stuff is going to sound like that doesn't sound like our culture, but relative to other cultures. These are actually strong suits of Americans, okay? Um, and individualists in general. We walk faster. Uh, we work more hours. We're better at dealing with failure. We stick to impartial rules and principles. We're more trusting, honest, fair, and cooperative towards strangers than people in other countries, significantly more. Um, there's less favoritism, less nepotism, and less racism, significantly less than in other countries. We delay gratification and save for the future much better. That's not how we think of our culture, but relative to other cultures, we're better at that. And of course, people mentioned we're more innovative and entrepreneurial on average. Okay, so there are some, some strengths. Interesting what, what Beth mentioned about not going with the crowd. So there's this famous psychology experiment where people are, uh, are asked in a group of eight to look at these two lines and tell which line is longer. And the answer is really obvious. And it's called the Ash Conformity Test. And after a few iterations, all seven people, except for the one, start answering with the wrong answer and all the same wrong answer. Well, it turns out they're all plants, right? And so the real test is of the one person and will he or she go with the crowd? So when they do that, about 33% of people go with the crowd the whole time. About 75% of people go with the crowd at least once and the 25% remainers uh, never go with the crowd. They're just always choosing the right answer. Now, we look at that and we're like, man, people are really gullible and they go with the crowd a lot, which is true. But when you run this in other cultures, when you run this in Zimbabwe, everybody goes with the crowd. <laughs> There's, it's only Americans yeah. that there are some people who, who can look at the crowd literally eight out of 10 times and say, everyone else in here is wrong. <laughs> so. That's, that's a very individualist way of seeing the world. So individualism is just a fact. This is hardwired into us from our earliest days. Uh, I don't think that this is any kind of moral failing. It's just a fact, but it can lead to certain moral failings. There are traps that individualists can fall into. Collectivist cultures have a lot of things going for them as well. They also have their own problems. Now, biblical cultures in general, which were they? Collectivist or individualist? Yeah, they're generally a lot more collectivist. That's totally true. At the same time, though, we have plenty of biblical characters who would stand alone while other people bowed down in sin, right? So what would be some examples of people who stood up by themselves? Daniel. Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have uh, Rakshak and Benny, depending on your version. Uh, I have... You know, Gideon, Joshua and Caleb that went against the other spies, uh, David, obviously, and Goliath, right? So at the same time, we see the collectivist aspect because when Joshua said he was going to stand alone for God at a certain point, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he had this conception that his house was going to be with him, whatever he did. 
I think the words of C.S. Lewis on the matter are very apt. He says, I feel a strong desire to tell you, and I expect you feel a strong desire to tell me, which of these two errors, individualism or collectivism, is worse. That is the devil getting at us. He always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking about which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern with either of them than that. So what's the errors on the other side? What are maybe some problems you could think of of being an overly individualist culture? Isolating. Isolating, great. Self-absorbed, self-centered. And kind of to, to Lita's point earlier, we look at somebody who's having a hard time and we're like, man, glad I'm not them. <laughs> it's it's uh, the ex expectation that you're going to get through that on your own. That's our default assumption. What else? Lack of compassion. Yeah, maybe lack of putting ourselves in other people's shoes, sure. Yeah, I think indirectly, and we'll, we'll kind of connect those dots a little later on. So we're going to break down uh, for, for the next little bit about some of the problems with our, our hyper-individualistic culture, also expressive, individual, expressive individualism, which we've already unpacked, which of course has individualism as a key component of it. It's really hard to be an expressive collectivist. That's, that's not a real thing. Um, so we'll start with this general reminder that our culture is of the belief that the individual has the ultimate moral authority. The individual just decides or knows deep inside what is true. Okay? Um, in the worldview of expressive individualism, the purpose of the individual is to be himself and to express himself, and he is the only one who can determine what he ought to be. So I'm going to give you four points as we unpack this a little bit more and what this manifests itself like in our culture. So this is what our culture believes, four observations on this topic. Number one, hierarchies must be destroyed. Hierarchies must be destroyed. Uh, you could say authority must be destroyed. This is a core belief of our society. What evidence would you say that there is that our culture doesn't like submitting to authority? Defund the police. Defund the police. So and just a general uh, dislike of any law enforcement. Sure. The feminist movement, and you're talking about potentially the authority of men in society. Mm -hmm. Within the family, yeah. That patriarchy is like the ultimate insult just to say it's the patriarchy. When in the Bible, there, there were patriarchs. That was a real thing. Yeah, what else? Yeah, so children disrespecting adults and, and adults in positions of explicit authority. We, like, I, you can't tell me what to do. Are you kidding me? Pastor tells you to tithe. 
And so I feel like pastors don't. Yeah, so there's a second order effect that people in authority are less likely to exercise their authority because they don't want to show down that they feel like they're going to lose. And you might see that in the classroom as well. So we also live in a very low power distance culture. That just means we don't perceive much of a gap between us and the people in authority over us. That's another thing that's kind of measurable, like individualism. Collectivist cultures tend to have a higher power distance. They just, they don't think everyone is on the same level. That's not their basic assumption. Um, Some other evidences of that low power distance too, is we're much less likely to use titles of authority than uh, than places in other, uh, people in other countries, less likely to use even generic titles like sir and ma'am. We're pretty quick to disagree with people in authority. We're quick to speak up when we don't like something. Of course, there can be some positives to this, but you can see there are negatives as well. But there's a fundamental belief in our society that hierarchies enslave a naturally free man. And this was put to words a long time ago by Rousseau. He says, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. This is, you know, one of the, the, the thinkers that brought us sort of our modern culture. And to free ourselves on this view, it's essential that we continuously question authority, question hierarchy, and anything that could put, put us in chains of having to listen to someone else. You know, in the a movement a generation ago, don't trust anyone over 30 was one of the ways this was said. Ironically, all those people are much older than 30 at this point. But isn't there some irony in order to get rid of authority, there's got to be a collective Yeah. So the feminist movement can't be just one woman. That'd be a feminist movement. So you do have to have a power in numbers. Yeah. And I think you're right. You do have to have some mass movement in order to unseat authority. But then the question is, at least their belief is, that nobody will regain that authority. We'll all just stay flat and perfectly equal. That's the belief. Here's a quote from the matter um, on a website I found called Evolution Counseling. It's just a counseling website. And so you're going to hear very clear rejection of authority in this quote, but also listen to the expressive individualism, this idea that you should be who you are on the inside and resist anything that pulls you off that path. Rebellion is absolutely essential for growth and self-actualization because environmental conditions can never perfectly match the unique individual. With rising self-awareness, there's bound to be friction between person and environment, a battle of wills in our culture, that first glimmer of individuality and subsequent attempts at self-actualization are brutally crushed. Good boys and girls are the children who do as they are told. In our existential psychological sense, which is their sort of framework, obedience is actually pathological. An aborted state where you have given up on self-actualization, resigning yourself to the path of least resistance where your life is clearly laid out before you by someone else where you don't have to make any choices on your own. Obedience in all its forms does have the great psychological pull of acting as a tranquilizer, reducing the painful feelings of existential anxiety that always accompany self-determination. But with self-actualization comes disobedience, comes resistance to authority, because like we said, self-actualization is choosing your own path, not the path someone else has chosen for you. So it's kind of amusing to me that we all consider ourselves to be very free thinkers. Just sort of a truism in our culture. We all think we're very free thinkers. It's kind of like every man secretly thinks he could win in a fight. 
This is just an unstated belief of all men, right? Um, and so this resistance to authority is a, is a, a rule in our culture. It's, it's the norm. It's true on the political right as well as the left. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why on, on both sides of the political aisle, we really have a strong preference for outsiders. We want somebody who feels like they're closer to us in power. They don't have any history or history of authority. That's who we want because they're like a man of the people, whoever that is, or a woman of the, of the people. And of course, we don't tend to have loyalty, speaking on the political right here, true of the left as well, to the institutions and the systems of government in general. We tend to have loyalty to when our people are in power and when our people are not in power, then the whole government is illegitimate and we owe no loyalty and no respect to the government, right? Because our people aren't in power. And so the government has no, has no intrinsic uh, legitimacy. We also find this resistance to hierarchy really all throughout our pop culture. It's super easy to find examples of this. I was watching a sort of action adventure TV show the other day, and there was a scenario where the ship commander gave an order to a subordinate, used this classic line because the subordinate didn't want to follow it. This isn't a democracy. And then the subordinate says, well, maybe it should be. And plot twist, they turned the command structure into a democracy, right? I want to see that work in an actual military unit, right? But this is what we think is, is normal. Some of the most popular books of our time, kids' books, the Harry Potter series, um, I've read through that. It's an interesting read, but one of the, the most common threads is that those kids are always disobeying the people in authority over them. And a lot of times that pe the people in authority are, are legitimate, they're fine leaders in the context, but they're just constantly being disobeyed. And of course, it's always working out for the kids and they're saving the world because they're not listening to the adults that are in charge of them. Interestingly, there is also a sort of cultural affinity for Satan as a symbol of rebellion. And some of this was unintentionally uh, kind of grew out of what John Milton, who was a Puritan from the 17th century, how he described Satan in his epic English poem called Paradise Lost. Okay, so Milton is a Christian, and so he writes this long poem uh, about his dramatization of the, of the fall and, and this Paradise Lost, right? And he kind of gives the devil a fair say, as a good author would. He like puts some good words in the devil's mouth, gives the devil some good lines. And this is one of the interesting ones. You'll also notice here that the 17th century English poet has pegged the devil as an expressive individualist. You'll, you'll hear this. So here we go. The words of Satan in John Milton's mind. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same? Here at least, and he's talking about he's being sent to hell, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy. He will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And that is actually kind of, a message that our culture says, yeah, that sounds about right. Interestingly, there's a, an 1800s poet uh, who was one of the romantics, kind of in the vein of Rousseau. His name was Percy Shelley, and he wrote specifically about Milton's depiction of Satan. And he says, nothing can exceed the energy and magnificence of the character of Satan 
as expressed in Paradise Lost. Milton's devil is a moral being far superior to his God. He's one who perseveres in some purpose, which he has conceived to be excellent in spite of adversity and torture, whereas God is the one who, in the cold security of undoubted triumph, inflicts the most horrible revenge upon his enemy. So Percy is casting his lot with Satan here. And that's something that our culture goes, yeah, that, that sounds about right. It makes sense that uh, Harry and Meghan would be overall Hmm. That's a really good example of that. Yeah. yeah. So you have real royalty, people who abandon their duties and their praise for that. Wow. How brave of you to not do the thing you became famous and wealthy yeah. <laughs> for, yeah. for fulfilling. Um, and of course, recently in the, in the Grammys well, a week ago, you had uh, a presentation of a song where somebody dressed up as Satan. Right, because they're not necessarily believing in Satan, but they they like this symbol of rebellion. So the message of our culture is clear: you know better. The best plan is for there to be no authority to constrain your choices, and the second best plan is for you to avoid and rebel against all authority. Second observation is that the collective imposes duties that are an enemy to your self-expression. The collective imposes duties that are an enemy to your self-expression. So collectives constrain your choices in a number of ways. What, what kind of collectives? Families, churches, small towns, you know, even your, your government, your nation, right? And so one of the most common plots in our cultural underdog stories is the story of somebody from a small and small-minded town who goes out and makes it big on their own. That's like an individualist, uh, super inspiring story, right? And there are a lot of duties that collectives impose upon us that our culture is rejecting. So we're going to unpack in the next lesson in, in, in some detail duties to family, right? Uh, caring for aging parents, keeping your unborn children alive, remaining committed to your spouse. Those are things our culture is, eh, we don't need to do those anymore. Duties to your community, though, are also interesting. That's maybe supporting local charitable causes with time and money, uh, joining voluntary associations. So voluntary associations used to be one of the greatest strengths of the American, uh, the American nation, American fiber. There's a, a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville who went around America in the 1820s, and he just wrote about what made America different from France, which had recently undergone uh, a really unpleasant revolution. And, and de Tocqueville is just trying to understand America. One of his big takeaways is he says this, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general, very particular, immense, and very small. Americans use associations to give praise, to found seminaries, to build inns, to raise churches, to distribute books, to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools. Finally, if it is a question of bringing to a light a truth or developing a sentiment with support of a great example, they associate. Everywhere that at the head of a new undertaking, you see the government in France and a great lord in England, 
count on it that you perceive an association in the United States. So voluntary associations were just the, the fabric of what we did. But of course, those voluntary associations are massively on the decline. You can think of the national chapters, the things like Rotary and Kiwanis, these sort of things. They're all much, much smaller than they used to be. Um, to the degree that we still do associate, that tends to be web-based and interest-based. And those associations, if you're in like a Facebook photographer's group, it just doesn't have the same level of personal responsibility and duty and connectivity. And I don't think the internet is to blame for this. It's just how we choose to use the internet because this decline happened long before these sort of internet options came around. Yeah. Um, I was never asked to join a rotary or anything like that because I never knew anybody in it. Is that because my parents' generation stopped, which is a lot of you guys, or is it because we're Christian, which is what my parents would probably say, and we do the church instead of the I do think the church is a very strong form of an association. Of course, church membership, that sort of thing, is on the decline as well. So certainly it makes sense that church folks feel a less need for, for some of those other types of associations. But there are things like maybe the parent-teacher association or city council or things that are community-based beyond those sort of national-branded chapters. Those associations I think would be very appropriate for Christians to participate in. And generally, you probably see less of that. You do see less of that than you would certainly 100 years ago, um, but more recently as well. We generally feel like we have less duty to our friends as well. Um, we have more leisure time. We have more opportunity to have friends, and yet we have fewer friends than we did a generation ago. In 1990, Gallup asked Americans how many close friends they had. 33% of Americans said they had 10 or more close friends in 1990. Now that's down to 13%, so less than half. The number that said they have no close friends jumped from 3% to 12%. So people don't have anyone. Uh, a little different take on the question, 58% of Americans felt like no one in their life knew them well, which would include a spouse, you would assume. So we have less duty to, to take care of our friends. I would say you see less duty to employers and less duty to employees on the flip side of that, right? So people maybe are more likely to, to try to get away with, with not working or this, you just have this great resignation. The labor force participation rate is pretty low. And on the employer side, a generation ago, if you were going to lay somebody off due to, due to hard economic times, you would feel some loyalty to them and you would go, well, is there any way that I can not lay them off? And that would be really important. And I know some Christian companies that just went through some tough times and that was really important to them. And they did, they went to great lengths to try to retain their employees out of loyalty to those employees. But our society doesn't feel like that's as important any, anymore, right? Duty to the poor. Um, is something that we don't feel like we have either. So this is <clears throat> a synopsis actually that I wrote of a book by author Brooks called Who Really Cares? And in this book, um, he says that people who oppose government redistribution are actually more likely to give to charity. People who think the government should redistribute more income to the poor are significantly less likely to give to the poor themselves. Adjusting for income and all other factors, their belief that the government should do more diminishes the likelihood that they give to charity by about 10 percentage points. They volunteer less as well. This effect gets even stronger when combined with religiosity. 
a person who goes to church every week and strongly opposes government redistribution will give 100 times more to charity than a secularist who strongly supports redistribution. The churchgoer will give 50 times more to non-religious charities as well. So as our society becomes less religious and more of the mind that eh, the government should take care of these problems, back to last lesson about how justice is the answer to every problem, um, we're doing less ourselves. Uh, so the book is Arthur Brooks, Who Really Cares? And uh, you can find those, those stats in there. So another, another observation I have is that general duties to our nation, so not just thinking about our government, but thinking about our nation, our, our broader collective that is America, right, are also down. Voter participation is about 20 percentage points lower than it was in the 1800s. So in the 1800s, about 80% of people showed up to the polls for a presidential election. You gotta figure it was much harder to get to the polls <laughs> in 1870, right? Um, and, and I mean, if you're thinking about, you know, Reconstruction era, that would include just recently freed slaves who were facing a lot of obstacles to get to the polls, right? And so now voter participation is, is pretty far down. The military is facing a recruiting crisis. There are conversations going on about how sustainable our all-volunteer military is into the future because not enough people are volunteering. And they pay pretty well, but still you kind of have to have a sense of duty to put people over that threshold. And not as many people have that. Of course, law enforcement and corrections are facing a recruiting crisis as well. So that's the second point, that the collective imposes duties, and these duties are an enemy to your self-expression. So moving on to the third, the only collective that is accepted is the state, since it has minimal impact on self-expression. The only collective we're still okay with is the government. Um, it's interesting because we think of our culture as becoming more collectivistic when you look at things like the rise in interest in socialism relative to a generation ago. Of course, if you look multiple generations ago, socialism interest was pretty high back in the 30s, but um, you know, in the 80s, it wasn't so much. So I, I recently read a story about someone who was actually a part of a liberal commune in Wyoming, so just a hippie commune, right? And this person had come out of it and was reflecting back on that experience and saying, it probably wasn't the best, best move in my life. But what was ironic is, it seems like the most collectivist thing you can do to go live on a commune. But the reality of a liberal commune was people got together for a bonfire once a night and maybe a work project every once in a while. And other than that, they just went off and smoked weed and ate mushrooms by themselves. It was a very individualistic, leave me alone kind of atmosphere. And the collectivism was just kind of a veneer on top of it. And I think that while there certainly are collectivist societies that have implemented various socialist governments, I think socialism has a certain kind of appeal to the atomized individualist because it takes care of all of those duties that previously you had to voluntarily associate in family, in church and community to take care of. And all of those are now taken care of by the state, which means you are free to take care of no one but yourself. Some trade-offs in that, but, <laughs> but uh, those trade-offs aren't obvious to people. So if we abandon our duties, something does have to take their place, which is why atomized individualism inevitably leads to an all-powerful state. 
in the now infamous words of a 2012 political ad, the government is the only thing we all belong to. They were saying the government's the only thing we have in common as a society anymore, which is a really sad state to be in. Um, and, and I don't, don't think that's true, but that, that was the belief. That is the belief of many people. Moving on to the fourth observation about the demise of collectivism is that shame is renounced when it opposes self-expression. Shame is renounced when it opposes self-expression. So let's talk for a minute about what the difference between guilt and shame is. So what's guilt? Yeah, it's, it's an inner feeling that you shouldn't have done that, and maybe you should do it differently that next time. What's shame, which is the opposite? It is a bad feeling too, but it doesn't come from inside. It actually comes from outside. So social shame is your culture telling you that's bad, you shouldn't do that. Some cultures uh, tend to be more guilt-based, and some tend to be more shame-based. Very strong correlation with whether or not you're individualist, in which case you tend to be more guilt-oriented, or whether you're more collectivist. Collectivists are more shame-oriented. And in a collectivist society, the actions of the individual are understood to affect the group. So I care about what you do because you're a part of my church. And so if you do something bad, I'm going to shame you if I'm a collectivist because your actions reflect on me, even though you're a different person with a different name, you know, and a different family and so forth. The positive opposite of shame is honor, which is just the society uh, ascribing worth to somebody. We're we're really proud of you. You you bring honor to us. I would say probably the uh, positive opposite of guilt. Some people say innocence, which I I get um, in the sense that you can be guilty and then your guilt can be expunged. But I would say it's really more self-esteem or internal pride. That seems like the the logical opposite. So we, we do good things as individualists, so we don't feel guilty. And so we do feel self-esteem. We feel proud of ourselves, right? Whereas the collectivist cares more about what other people think. And it's not a strict matter of either or, right? So every culture is going to have some of both. But in general, there's going to be some kind of domination. So if you're in uh, an Eastern society like Japan, they regulate their obesity in their society through shame. If somebody's overweight, people are going to look at you funny. They might call you names, right? The kids might, might poke your belly, right? There's, there's a culture of we can shame you because this is how we regulate you know, this in our society. In America, if you're overweight, we do have sort of a regulation on this, but it's guilt. It's you feel bad about yourself. Um, and we think it's really bad if somebody tries to make you feel bad about that. Right. So we have more of a guilt type of regulation. Now, our culture has been guilt, innocence, dominated for a long time. I think there are some exceptions. The more rural parts of our country, the South, tends to have more of an honor-shame dynamic historically than the more urban uh, and, and so forth. But we used to have more of an element of shame in our culture in general than I think we do today. So the phrase, she has no shame, or he is shameless, those are both phrases that we know are, are insults. Those are bad things. If somebody says you have no shame, that's, that's very unflattering. There was a time when being an unwed parent or somebody who's divorced would have been considered kind of shameful. I actually read in an older etiquette book 
that it said, if you're a divorced woman and you have children, you should wear your wedding ring because you wouldn't want people in public to think that you were an unwed mother. So it's acceptable for, you, for a divorced woman with children to wear her wedding ring um, because they were concerned about what people at the grocery store thought about them. That's more of a collectivist kind of shame, uh, shame-based society. So in our culture, shame is generally resisted if it's inhibiting your self-expression in any sort of way, if it's considered an obstacle to overcome. And I will say there's also kind of an alternate definition of shame, which creates a little confusion here. It's sort of an internal feeling of unworthiness, which is really more like guilt gone awry. Um, but we're focusing here on sort of social shame, right? I think uh, Philippians 3.18 sums up what this looks like in a society. It says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So in a collectivist society, Paul is saying that among us, there are people who are proud to break the rules, to be transgressive. That was true at that time, much more true today. There is an interesting question about whether our society is becoming more honor-shame-based and less guilt-innocent-based than it used to be. And, and Scott kind of mentioned that to me at the beginning here. It's actually tough to look in data and see hard trends on that because younger people always are more shame-driven than older people. Teenagers are just more sensitive to what other people think about them. That, that makes sense. That jives with our experience. So you're always going to see the younger generation as a little more caring about other people's thoughts and the older generation a little less so. Um, I don't think there is, there's hard evidence that our culture is becoming more honor-shame driven um, in general, but I do think it is in specific ways. So here's what I think has, has changed. There was a time when the norms in our society were pretty much all Judeo-Christian norms. And so if you wanted to violate those norms, you had to reject shame. But we have a new set of norms. And those norms are expressive individualism, justice is the only virtue, some of the stuff we've talked about. Those things are become so dominant in our society that they are now cultural norms at the same level as um, you know, the norm that you shouldn't get divorced would have been 50 years ago. And so as a result of that, you have people who didn't used to care about norms that all of a sudden care about norms because the norms now align with their worldview. So, the, so what I think that looks like is we used to have a culture, just to make up some numbers, that was kind of 80-20, 80% guilt, 20% shame. That was maybe the culture of the 50s, right? And then we had a relativist generation that said, we don't care about any of your norms. And so we became very much, all the shame was pushed away. It's like 95 guilt, 5% shame. And now we're sort of shifting back towards maybe an 80-20, still dominated by guilt, but there's more shame. But the shame is around new norms that aren't Christian norms. They're anti-Christian norms, but they are in fact norms. That's how I interpret what's happening. Now, whether it'll keep shifting and we'll go all the way to like a Japanese style shame-driven society. It's possible. I don't necessarily see that coming, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, nobody really knows. There's still a number of areas in which our culture is very opposed to shame though. I mentioned fat shaming. That's terrible, right? Because you're, uh, you're actually violating the norm of letting people be whoever they want to be. So 
there we have it. That's what our culture thinks. Those are four observations about the demise of the collective. The truth, and I'll give you four points here that generally track with the points that I've, I've already given you. Uh, I'll start with just this reminder at the outset that, biblically speaking, the individual has no intrinsic moral authority. Neither does the group very significantly, which is what collectivists could fall into, right? So the moral authority belongs to God. And the way Peter and the apostles answered it in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And it doesn't matter whether it's God rather than the voice inside my head or God rather than all of you. It doesn't matter. We must obey God. That's where moral authority comes from. So four points on that. Number one, hierarchy is the basic state of human existence. Hierarchy is the basic, and I would say healthy, state of human existence. Hierarchy is really deep in our psyche, even in an individualist society. We tend to follow the leader even when we say we don't. So it's ironic to me that we're one of the freest people in history in a lot of ways, and yet we use our liberation to get on the internet, find out what everyone else is doing, <laughs> and go do that. There's a reason why the Bible says we are sheep. It says it many, many times. This is in our nature. We follow people. And the sad irony is that many people who fancy themselves such free thinkers and really on their own path are actually herding down a very wide and very well-trodden path that leads to destruction, all the while applauding themselves for how clever they are. We like to think also that everyone is equal, and of course that is true in the sense of everyone being an image bearer of God and having dignity and you know, sort of rights that are given to us by our Creator. But when it comes to performance in various realms, it's pretty understandable that people are not all the same. Like People do not all perform at the same level in every way. So our societies, our large societies and our small societies and communities are always going to have elites of one sort or another. There are people who are just going to be better at something and they rise to the top of a hierarchy, and they're recognized for being better at something. There is a difference between being an elite and being an elitist. So an elitist is just an attitude of condescension, right? Anybody can be an elitist. We can all be elitists. <laughs> but we cannot, all, we cannot all win the gold medal. We cannot all be at the top of the totem pole in whatever the context is. And when we're talking about leaders and leadership, you know, leaders may not always be the most capable. People might rise to the top of a hierarchy for any number of reasons. But a lot of times you just need a leader who can make a decision. It really doesn't matter what side of the road we drive on. But it does matter that we all drive on the same side. And there are a lot of things in life that are like that. And that's what leadership can help you accomplish. And if you're in submission to authority, a lot of things will just work out better. So... Biblically speaking, I submit that we ought to submit ourselves to hierarchies that we find ourselves in. We can respect our position. We can work within the hierarchy to serve the collective and to advance, all the while rendering to God the things that are God's and only rendering to man the things that are man's. Or you can spend your entire life rebelling against the hierarchy, raging against the machine, and the most likely thing you're going to accomplish is just to break the machine, but you're not going to make anything better if that is your general outlook. Because you cannot hold any collective together without some sort of hierarchy. Even a democracy. In a democracy, if 51% of the people decide to do X, the other 49% of the people have to go along with it, at least until the next election. 
And if they don't, you can't hold together any group of people where there are more than two opinions, right? So we always have to keep fragmenting down. And of course, as we all know, that even the atomized individual will eventually, when they turn over all their responsibilities to an all-powerful state, they will find that they are, in fact, subjected to a very strong hierarchy that they were not planning on. But by our nature, as Americans, we hate hierarchy. We don't like it, even though it's all throughout Scripture. Scripture is full of patriarchs, of kings, of prophets, of elders, of apostles, some of whom were in charge not because of their special merit, but because of who was in their family tree. And there are so many verses in Scripture about hierarchy that just make us cringe. Let me read you some cringy verses from God's Word. 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Cringe. Whether it be to the emperor as, to, as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Peter 3.5 For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, cringe, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, double cringe, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Ephesians 6.5 Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, cringe, with sincere hearts as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same. That's kind of cringy too. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So that last one, that's talking about the, the institution of slavery in the Bible, which is more like indentured servitude, right? So it's not the same thing as the slavery from the, you know, Africa to the Americas and to the Arab world. But, and so it's not race-based. It's not always perpetual. You could get out of it. Um, and, and a bond servant or a slave could occupy a position of some influence in society. But it's not the kind of institution that we would set up. It's the kind of institution that we have banned. I think rightly so. And why doesn't God just condemn it outright in the Bible? Does he not care as much about freedom as we do? I think it's pretty obvious that he does not. God is more concerned about our righteousness than our freedom. He's more concerned about what we do with the freedom that we have than how much freedom we have. And so the most important thing about hierarchy to God is that he is at the top of it. And I'm not going to say he doesn't care, but he's far less concerned with who's in charge of who than we are. He's just concerned that we remember that he's in charge of everyone. And he is, of course, uh, the, you know, the ultimate in, in all the hierarchies. Second observation I have is that the collective imposes duties that lead to our flourishing. The duties imposed by the collective lead 
to our flourishing. So philosophers like Rousseau and John Locke, who we kind of like because he had some influence on our country, they theorized about how nations formed. And they said, okay, essentially what happens is in a state of nature, people are free, and then they realize they can't do everything they need to do if they're just like hanging out by themselves on their own, with their own little huts. So they come together and they agree that we're going to have some rules that we're all going to collectively enforce, and that's where governments come from, and that's where society comes from. That's the whole theory of John Locke and, and Rousseau. Problem with that is that it's never happened once, um, as, far, as far as we are aware, in all of human history. So this, this sort of thought experiment is just not how society formed. So how does society form? Well, you're born, and you're born into what? You're born into a family. This is, do you choose your family? No, you're randomly assigned, your family. And then your family, historically, families banded into clans. Multiple families would, would work together. Clans would band into tribes, and tribes would eventually form nations. This is how society actually formed. So why does that matter at all? Um, where we came from. It's because on the first view, individuals voluntarily form collectives. And therefore, if those collectives no longer serve our purposes, we can just disband them. Because we chose, we opted into them as free people, and if we don't like it, we just change it. But that's not how, what actually happened. What actually happened is we were assigned by God in some way to a bunch of collectives at our birth. And we have duties and loyalties and obligations to those collectives, not because we chose them, but just because that's our people. That's how things actually work, which is how we should want it, because humans are relational beings. And it is a mercy that God did not assign us as individuals into a state of nature to see what kind of relationships we could form. He built us into a deep mesh of pre-existing relationships. And those relationships are necessary for our flourishing. So those collectives do impose duties on us without our consent, but they also contribute to us in a lot of ways, right? So collectives, they transfer knowledge from generation to generation, whether that's a master to an apprentice, whether that's a father to a son. They provide for and protect the weak. They honor the elders for their past contributions. We're not done with you when you're too old to contribute anymore in a collective. We still appreciate what you have done. And, and what you've done, even once you're dead, we still appreciate what you have done. They ensure justice, mercy, and charity, a fair distribution of resources that takes into account both what people contribute and their circumstances. Collectives are really good at figuring that out at the, at the small level. Provide stability and purpose. We're not just floating around looking for a purpose. We have a purpose. We have multiple purposes, but we have things that we need to forward, um, things that we need to carry on to the next generation because we were given them in ours. Third observation, the alternative to an all-powerful state is strong collectives and subsidiarity. The alternative to an all-powerful state is strong collectives and subsidiarity. Subsidiarity, um, S-U-B-S-I-D-I-A-R-I-T-Y. So for a lot of reasons, many of which come down to the nature of knowledge and the power of uh, the individual and individual relationships to know things about someone that you can never know at a higher level. Um, the state does a really bad job at solving all of the problems in society. And so you have three basic institutions 
in our society. You have the state, the government, you have the market, and you have um, civil society. So civil society is family, church, community groups, all this sort of voluntary thing. And so each of these three groups have some special abilities that the others don't have. So the state has a monopoly on violence. The state can make you do stuff. That makes the state really good at providing for the common defense, enforcing property rights, um, you know, protecting individuals from abuse. State's really good at that. The market, the market has uh, the profit motive, the price mechanism, and that makes the market really good at allocating resources and finding the most efficient use for a good or service. The civil society has, has voluntary association, has love. You can't get that in the market. You try to make the market solve all the problems, it can't. The government can't solve all the problems. The civil society is really good at helping people flourish, helping people grow, helping people who fall down get back up. So we have different you know, spheres in our society. God has created all of them. They're all found throughout scripture. And we need to turn to the civil society to solve a lot of the problems that we're turning to the state to solve. But of course, how do we determine who should solve what ill? Okay, now on the margin, there's going to be a lot of debate, and, and rightly so, between exactly what problem the government should solve, exactly what problem civil society should solve, and exactly what levels. But there's a guiding principle, which I mentioned, subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is just the idea that there are concentric circles of responsibility around each individual, and you should try to solve problems at the most local level to the individual. So an example is you should care for your own child. Number one, if you have a child, you should care for it. If you can't care for your own child, who's the next closest who should help you care for your child? Grandma. Your family, your grandma, right? If your family's not around to help you care for your child and you can't do it yourself temporarily or permanently, who's the next institution that should probably help? Church. Your church. And then maybe your community, maybe that's a nonprofit. And only then would we, would we look to the foster care system or the government to solve that problem. We would not go, mm, you can't take care of your kid really well, so let's just pull straight out of your house, put him in foster care, wash our hands of the whole thing, and watch that turn out real well, right? Because that, that usually doesn't. So is that in the Bible? Um, yeah, it actually is. So 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we don't just have infinite, unlimited responsibilities in all directions. We do have some responsibilities in all directions, but they become stronger and stronger and stronger closer to home. And we fulfill those first, and then we keep doing what God gives us the, the grace and capacity to do further and further away. Okay? That actually solves these problems really well, much better than an all-powerful state. Um, the all-powerful state thing has been tried. That's not, uh, it's not a new idea. Fourth observation I have is that shame can be an important regulator of our behavior. Shame can be an important regulator of our behavior. So social shame, as kind of I talked about, um, has a very valid function when it's used well. It's used well and poorly in Scripture. So let's look at an example. This is shame as used by Jephthah's brothers in Judges 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. 
for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So, do you think that having a child with a prostitute should be considered shameful? Yeah, it seems fair. Um, but was this handled well by Jephthah's brothers? No, why not? What, what's wrong with the way they handled it? It wasn't his fault. Yeah. Well, wasn't his father their father? Mm-hmm. So maybe they should share the same shame. Yeah. So I think there's a really actually clean way to think about what went wrong here. Godly shame always offers a path for restoration. Always offers a path for restoration. Now, clearly... There was no path for Jephthah to be restored because it was something he didn't even do, right? But let's look at some godly shame in Scripture. Paul uses it quite a bit. He uses the word. He also uses the concept. 1 Corinthians 6, 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that no one among you is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 1 Corinthians, they got a lot of it. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So godly shame, it's going to point people towards the law of God. It's going to provide them a path for restoration. And of course, the ultimate antidote to shame is acceptance and honor. And so once you have repented, once you have done the thing that you're supposed to do, you follow that path, then we need to embrace you back into the community, not hold your past against you. Paul talks about this too. 2 Corinthians 2, um, people think here that Paul is talking about the man who had some kind of ancestral relationship with his mother-in-law in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, so he writes again in the second letter, and it seems like this is maybe the same guy he's referring to, but he's now done the right thing and he has been restored. So he gives the church some instructions. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So Paul says, when you're messed up, we'll call you out. And when you repent, We will reaffirm our love for you and embrace you back into the community. That is godly shame used well in Scripture. So that's the truth. So let's talk about what this has to do with the church. How does this all apply to the church? Let's start with you. How do these ideas creep into our church? And we talked about sort of entitlement mentality, valuing our rights over our duties, resisting authority, not wanting to be a part of a collective, resisting godly shame. These are some of the ideas we've bandied about. So what does this look like in the church, in your experience? An unwillingness to do church discipline, I would say. Why don't you think we want to do church discipline? Right so I, I agree with you, but why unpack that a little bit more. Why do you think that is? Mm. Well, I think that even... I mean, we, you talked about it from the perspective of somebody who is uh, 
not in somebody who's under authority. Yeah. So we, we don't view authority uh, as distant or or even above us or anything. But I think authority also views um, people that are that are under their care mm-hmm. much the same way. Like, who am I? Why, why yeah. I think that's especially we don't think we have the right exactly. to call people out. Yeah. We're leaders. Yeah. 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 Especially in, in, in the context. I mean, I've talked to several pastors yeah. who would say that, that and I'd probably feel it on some level more than I would want to in yeah. this context. Well, and there, there are kind of two ways in which that's happening. So one is the leaders not feeling like they have the right to call people out. And the second one is that individualistic aspect of ourselves saying, well, if Lita's sinning, that's on Lita. Yeah. That does, that's not us. It's not me. Yeah. It's not me. Yeah. So it's not my responsibility. And then even if I had the responsibility, who am I to say? Yeah. You know? exactly. yeah. What, what else? Church hopping. That's the first one I have on my list. <laughs> if we don't like a church, we just pack up and leave, right? Yeah. Just relationship hopping across the board. If this if this collective isn't working out for me, I'm going to ditch it and go find another one. Yeah, Jim. It's more about what can I get instead of what can I give you? Mm-hmm. Where can I be in the church? How can I get better? It's more about, look, they're not doing this and we, 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 we. You know, and it's bad. Yeah, and that sort of goes into expressive individualism. It's all about how I can express myself, and the rela- relationships are just a means for me to do that. Um, everyone is just being used all the time in that framework. What else? Well, I was just thinking about um, hierarchies must be destroyed, collectives impose its duties on, on the, and the, those duties are the enemy of choices and it's like what kind of an awful society are we teaching our kids like you can't you couldn't possibly I couldn't make you do the dishes and if you can't start with the dishes and cleaning up your room like now there's just like all of these millions of kids growing up into like terrible human beings like that just this is why this is one of the ten commandments We'll, we'll unpack this a little more next lesson but honor your father and mother because that is where a new human learns about collectives and hierarchy, which, as it turns out, are not just present in the family. They're present throughout your entire life. And if you don't learn how to do that well, you're going to keep you know, hitting your head against that brick wall. So I had church hopping. I also have, um, kind of to what, what Pastor Scott said, a general resistance to, to following, enforcing, or even encouraging rules of any kind. So there's the specific, okay, if somebody's in sin, we don't want to call them out. But also just the idea that it's fundamentally inappropriate to share any standards of practice outside of just direct, the Bible says this is definitely sin. right? And we have to share them with a different tone, of course. But things like maybe a dress code at a, at a church function or at a Christian institution, like a Christian college or private school or something, we're really um, queasy about enforcing any kind of rules. Um, now, that can go too far in the other direction, of course. I grew up in that. Errors come in pairs. We know that. But 
Um, there, there's an error on this on the side as well. I have um, viewing our money and time as ours rather than belonging to God and to his church and to his mission. And so we view what we do with our money to be none of other people's business. And I'm not saying we need to share our annual giving receipts with everyone in the church, but what people do with the resources that God has entrusted to them is actually a, a family matter. Um, just like if, you know, if, if you're in a, a family unit and the, and the mom or the dad is like, yeah, I have a side job and from this job, I just keep all the income for me and I don't share that with the family. <laughs> that, would, that would be a real, we need to sit down and have a family discussion about that one, right? Um, and same thing, maybe there's even a place for some godly shame for people who say, oh, all this stuff is mine, all the time is mine, I'm not going to give any money or time to any of God's mission. Um, yeah, you know, we don't want to be quick to rush to judgment if somebody's given in some other way. I got that. But it just blows our mind to think that we might shame people <laughs> into doing the right thing. But I don't think that's a, a very strange concept to Scripture. That's very difficult for individuals. How yeah. How do you do that without offending people? I don't think you can. Well, and I, and I don't know that you do, but I think we have to call people out of their individualism. And you may find that there's a winnowing effect and there's some separating of the wheat and chaff, but how much more powerful are we, even if we are fewer in number, when we do things God's way, right? And that's always a, a trade-off that churches have to make on the margin. Like, how, how many toes do we want to step on? <laughs> there's, uh, I was going to say, church hopping affects every single other issue we're going to talk about. Yeah. This. Because, I mean, if there's one church in town and... That, and Everybody belongs there. You have a, a lot of leverage, yeah. if you want to use that word, to get people to fall in line. Mm -hmm. But I would say a, a benefit of freedom is that there are a lot of options and combinations sure. and all of those sorts of things. And so pastors are, I mean, because because they know that's a reality, they're less likely to do the other thing. Or leadership, I shouldn't just say pastors, yeah. leadership in general. And yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying. It well, people sense. respond to incentives. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense to me. But don't you think also with the disintegration of personal um, relationships, I mean, it causes all of these things that we've been talking about. Because, you know, if, if our relationships are strong, then we don't receive from each other. We don't care what somebody else thinks. You know, and so in my mind's eye, a lot of these things that you're talking about right here, when when we we stopped forming strong bonds with each other, and this is especially true within the church, then all of this other effect goes by the wayside because I don't care enough about you to get involved, you know, yeah. or I don't trust you enough to receive what you're saying. So the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah. But on the flip side, the whole thing doesn't work. But then as we strengthen that foundational element, then the whole thing starts to work again. Right. Um, I had kind of to a point that's already been said, treating other Christians sin like it's none of our business. Just I'll add Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, whoever here feels like you're spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So the Bible makes it very clear that it is our business. Well, that's going back to 
will say things to mm-hmm. each other because I I love them. They love me because I care about them. You know, they would call me out. And I mean that's something that's earned, but it's I don't know, it's like it's there's so many things in our culture. Carrie's sister has two daughters that were raised in church but it's become this marginal thing and they're just the one has always had always person oh you know oh god you know you didn't love blah, 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 blah. and it's like i have a nephew who is as immersed in a homosexual lifestyle as anybody can be and if something doesn't change he's going straight to hell mm-hmm. you know and he's embracing that and he's calling himself a pagan and all of these things and it's not loving to accept that and condone it yeah you know and it's not you don't have when you will challenge them. You know, it's like when I when I was directing Forge, you know, I would tell the guys, you know, I pray that if you are doing something you're not supposed to do, that you'll get caught. Mm-hmm. I pray that for you. And I said, pray that for me. I want you to pray that for me. Because I don't want to be getting away with stuff. You know, and that's a level of of relationship. You know, it's so easy to think, well, oh, you know, well, I've got 5,482 friends on Facebook. Well, I'm connected. You know, no. You know, we're not. We, it's, it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the most communication possible, yet the least personal communication mm-hmm. at hand. Um, I'll just give you an example. Um, it's been some years back, but uh, I went to prison. I was in church with my pastor and stuff like that. And he was watching his kids, and I was watching mine. And there was a circle of kids in the church about the size of the table. Just talking, they're texting each other as they're standing in that circle. He says, watch this. He went and took all the kids' phones and kept for that week with approval of the parents. Because it's just amazing. Instead of communicating, we're texting because it doesn't, I can't be devalued by texting or, or opinion. You know, uh, and there's no feelings in it. There's it's cold, you know, and, and why not talk when you're in front of each other? Even now, um, if, if I call somebody and feel like you can just hear it, it's like, why didn't you text me? They don't say it, yeah, but you can hear it in the pause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cultural norms around communication are kind of changing, um, make it more convenient. Yeah, Emily, you had something? Yeah, well, you, you don't want to call out somebody who's not actually a Christian. That, that makes sense. I think, I think you can ask, like, hey, you're, you're doing this. I, as I understand, the Bible says that. How do you put those things together? And you can probably unpack in that conversation whether or not they are actually interested in what God's Word says and then go from there. Yeah. Can you guys always have, tell the children that are not Christian, 
lives totally in opposition to ours. And I, I think a lot about what you said, or what Jamie said, like telling someone the truth because it's a matter of eternity, but they are they don't have ears to listen. And if you want a relationship whatsoever, you can't go there. If you do go there, then you've lost the relationship and lost communication. So Cindy has a prayer that, that someone suggested. We pray for protective Israel. <laughs> Just make them as miserable in their sin as possible, but keep them protected. You know, yeah. just but, but that's that's kind of a, a prayer we pray for them. Just just make them so miserable in their sin. There's no other place to go but you. Yeah. Well, my oldest son once said, "I pray that for him." He said, "Well, thanks a lot." <laughs> <laughs> And I think we have to demonstrate what right looks like, right? And what happiness looks like. And as you're praying misery on them, you're, you're demonstrating what living in, you know, in the joy of the Lord is. Uh, a couple more things I had real quick uh, on, on the church creeping in. One of my had is rejecting all shame. Just rejecting shame out of hand is a bad thing. Um, now, I'll caveat that there is more than one sense of the word shame. There is this sense of just, you know, a feeling of unworthiness that you can't do anything about. But there's certainly a godly and good sense of the word shame. And a lot of our worship songs just throw out shame, the word, and I think both concepts together. Um, popular Christian song titles that I looked up briefly was, I'm not ashamed, no shame, shame off, I won't be ashamed. It's a line, check your shame at the door. Again, there's maybe some truth in that, maybe some falsehood, but but we need to, to preach and understand that there is a good sense of godly shame. It's very biblical, and we should embrace that. Um, and then I would just throw out there, too, songs and sermons that are just all about me and I, and there's not much about we. Um, it was kind of interesting. There's, there's, when I was looking this up, there's a real vibrant debate in the worship leader community about you know, the degree to which this is a problem. Now, it's true that plenty of the psalms are written in the first person, there's nothing wrong with singing or praying in the first person. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but there, there is this sort of Jesus and me theology that isn't biblical. Um, we're, we're part of the household of faith, the body of Christ. And we need to probably be singing some more we songs to remind ourselves of that fact that's easy to overlook. You know that song Jesus. Uh, we got our own thing going. <laughs> Um, so let's move briefly into uh, application. How, how do we apply this to our lives? I got a few points for you at first, and then I'll open it up for what you have to share. The first thing I have is, in a context where you are not an authority, default to submission. Not to say always submit, but that should be our default position. It really goes against our nature. And, and we have to embrace this concept of what I call disagree and commit. All right, sometimes you have to say, I, I don't see it that way, and I'm still going to support the way we're doing it. Um, second one I have is just have more respect 
for people in authority and positions of authority, the position if not the person, um, even the political leaders you don't like, even Pastor Scott. <laughs> um, and, and it's what Paul was talking about with, with how, or Peter rather, when he's talking about uh, honoring the emperor. Honor is our secret weapon. It's, it's like love, right? It, it differentiates us. Because both sides are mad at each other, but when we also honor people based on authority, that makes us stand out. Just like love your enemies makes us stand out. Honor your enemies that are in authority makes us stand out. Go meet your neighbors. This one I have here, very practical application. Um, I know preaching in the choir here, a lot of you are probably very involved in community in your own way. But let's do our best to be involved in the communities we're a part of. And we have to resist the encroachment of the, encroachment of the all-powerful state by building vibrant communities. So many conservatives want to just get on the internet by themselves and rant about big government. The alternative is you have to get off the internet and go build relationships in your town and start to solve problems and take care of people in need and not just hype about why the government shouldn't do it, right? We have to build those communities because there are legitimate needs in our society and they are going to cry out for solutions. We've got to provide those. Um, I have fulfill your duties. Think about what your duties are and your various relationships. So cast an informed ballot. Be an active active citizen rather than an activist citizen. Do your job well. If you need to quit your job, Quit your job well. Try to give your employer some warning if that's okay, and and maybe offer to help out the person who replaces you a little bit. Try not to leave people in the lurch. Be there for your friends when your friends need you. I have teach your kids and grandkids to find purpose in relationship. We're so fixated on our special, unique, individual purpose. And there's some of that to be sure, individual gifts and so forth. But there's also purpose in being a part of community, part of family, part of a nation, part of a state, all of these things um, that we are a part of. We need to teach people that that's um, part of their purpose. And the last thing I have is go learn from someone older than you. Assume that in the hierarchies that are, that God has appointed, that people who are your elder, spiritually or by, by virtue of age, have wisdom. And we can learn from them. I think that's a big thing that's missing right now. It seems like older people are only getting information from their peers. And that's a detriment. You know? Yeah. What else do you have uh, as we close out here? How do we apply this to our lives? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe make a few mistakes in that direction because we've made plenty in the other. <laughs> it's important that well, you said get to know your neighbor, but it's important to uh, develop relationships with people before you start offering advice on how they should oh, yeah. live their life. I mean, they need to come to the point where they are almost asking you. And 
that takes time to develop mm -hmm. you know, a friendship, relationship, whether it be about uh, hobby or whatever it is. If you're volunteering with somebody, whatever you're doing, get to know the yeah. people one on one. And we can be deliberate about it. I, I want to say it's Mark Twain who said that whenever he uh, wanted to build relationships with neighbors, he would ask them for a favor. He'd ask them for a favor, and then they would feel like they should ask him for one back, and then pretty soon <laughs> there'd be a relationship, a connection there. Uh, you can get kind of, you can be deliberate. You can think about how do I build ties to people around me?